Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor, from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Welcome to Friday and welcome to Week in Review. I'm your host, Mike Lewis, in for Bill Radke, who is... Uh, missing and presumed happy uh, overseas. We have a terrific group of panelists today. Seattle Times transportation reporter David Crum. And David, thank you for joining us. Hi. Uh, freelance host, writer, and producer Angela Poe Russell. First time on the show. Nice to have you in. It's so good to be here. Thank you. And KUOW uh, labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg. Monica? Great to be here. Nice to see you. Uh, thanks for joining us, all of you. The, you can also find the show streaming on YouTube and on Facebook. King County Metro last week reached a three-year contract with its drivers and mechanics that would raise salaries by a minimum of approximately 15%, which would eventually raise the starting salary from somewhere between $52,000 to $60,000 annually. That's good news for drivers and mechanics. And bringing us the bad news for King County Metro is Seattle Times' David Croman. <laughs> other, than, other than salaries, what's the big issue Metro is trying to solve with this new contract, David? Well, I mean, the the first issue is that they don't have a contract. They've, uh, Fair enough. It, it's ex- yeah. it ex- the last one expired in October, so they have to get a new one. But you know, the timing of it is is pretty good. I would say for, I mean, for the union in particular, because the the staffing issues at Metro are significant, um, and I think anybody who rides King County Metro buses right now uh, will feel that. I mean, it's you you kind of hear sometimes about staffing shortages in the abstract, but. This is not abstract. I mean, it's impacting service. Um, lines being line, you know, canceled from time to time. Yeah, so um, f- something like 40% of Metro's fleet is currently unavailable right now because of backlogs, maintenance backlogs, because they don't have enough mechanics and parts. And, you know, operators, um, there are not enough operators showing up to, f- to fill routes. And so, you know, as a result, King County Metro... Um, has needed to cancel something like 20 routes permanently, reduce another 12. Um, and that's just to sort of reflect what people are already feeling on the ground. Um, so the hope is that with this contract, uh, you, you make King County Metro a more appealing place for, for people to come and work and, um, probably even more pressing in the short term to stay because, you know, a lot of the workforce is still, uh, retirement age and a lot of people could, you know, the, 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 the pain might not be over just yet. I mean, there's still a lot of people who might be retiring. And so this contract uh, offers incentives for people to stay and as well as for, for people to come on in the first place. Monica, you, you mentioned before the show that even with the significant raise, some drivers remain dissatisfied with the contract. Why is that? Yeah, it seems like one of the key sticking points for these drivers and across the labor force more broadly is a lack of con- control over their schedules. That's something that we see come up a lot in contract negotiations. It's a big issue for the unions that are forming at Starbucks is folks want to feel like they have a little bit more control over their time. And especially in a labor force like this where there are shortages and people have a lot of options, it's it can be a place where they really you know organize around and try to form some worker power to have a little bit more control. When they, David, let me throw something back to you because you mentioned something in passing about routes being canceled. Tell me a little bit about that because what my experience has been is that frequently <laughs> – it it's, tends to be the semi-low usage routes, but the people who depend probably the most on the bus. Is that the case? I think, yeah, that's right. I mean, if if you ride the, the higher frequency routes, like, you know, say the 8 or something that goes by Amazon, you're, you're probably starting to experience um, really late arriving buses because of traffic and things like that. But they are showing up eventually. But you're right. On some of the sort of lower use routes, you know, there's a there's a certain amount of triage that King County Metro has to do. So they look to the routes that maybe don't get as much use. And that's where there tends to be scaling back. Um, you know, the interesting thing about their their adjustments is it's, you know, they don't they don't love the word cancel, because in some in some ways, those routes are already being canceled in a de facto way, right. just because they're never showing up. And, you know, they wake up in the morning, they look at what's available, and they say, you know what, we can't run this anymore. So what they're saying is, these schedule changes are actually just reflecting what's already happening and what mm-hmm. people are already experiencing. It's sort of similar to what the state ferries did, which is to say, look, we're we're going to put out a schedule out there that's reduced, but the hope is that by doing so, at least you know 
you know, if the 10 o'clock is on the schedule, the 10 o'clock is actually going to show If it's going to show, right. Yeah. right. Here's a question I have. I mean, obviously, being able to keep the people engaged who are at that retirement age, you know, staying in place so you don't lose any more people. So, yes, the raises are, are a big piece of this. But how much of the problem, when you, what was that figure you threw out, like 40% of the fleet? I yeah. mean, it's almost half. Yeah. How much of this is also... Are there people out there who can do the job? I mean, in terms of some of this mechanical stuff, being able to maintain the fleet, how much of how much of that is the problem versus yeah, a, just the money? No, it's a really good question. It's, it's a huge part of the problem, actually. And um, it, you know, I mean, I think I think any kind of trade career these days is going to run into this problem in part because for decades now we've emphasized going to college and getting a bachelor's degree and have de-emphasized trades, and so there is just sort of an industry. More than industry, just sort of a global shortage of mechanics and um, you know welders or electricians, plumbers, plumbers well, the, whatever the, the it works, might be. Right. And so that's Metro is certainly feeling that. There's this sort of added wrinkle of most of Metro's buses at this point are hybrid electric, uh, and and the parts that go into hybrid electric are a lot more advanced than your sort of old traditional diesel mechan- you know, diesel buses. And so as a result. Metro is actually competing with, you know, the aeronautic industry, like pretty high tech, uh, advanced uh, mechanical stuff. And so it's, um, you know, they're, they're just in this sort of terrible position right now where um, there's an in, you know, global shortage of, of mechanics generally. But also, you know, people have have decent offers to go you know, up to Everett, maybe work for Boeing. Right. And Angela, let me ask you, you a question because you mentioned something before the show about this is not the, the the whole theme of this show should probably be staffing issues because it seems like in every topic we're going to be discussing today there's a staffing issue component you mentioned that specifically because we're not just talking about King County Metro we're talking about public institutions all over. Yes. Um, so many of us have experienced this, right, where you, you, you lose power and you see the crews come out and they're the unsung heroes. And I had a chance to go out and just talk to some of the some of the members of the crew. And one of them was going on 24 hours straight working, another one 30 hours. And I was like, what's the problem? And he's like, oh, people don't want to do this job. We just don't have enough linemen. And so, yeah, similar story. How do you get these people? But then as I bring up the the number of people we have available to do the job, on the other hand, I, t- I just talked to a guy yesterday who had been in treatment for drugs. And he said, when people come out of treatment, like they need work, they need stuff to kind of. So I'm hearing on one hand, people are needing work right, and maybe right. they don't have the skill set. So it makes me wonder, yeah, do we have what programs are out there to, to match these opportunities with folks who said, hey, I need a shot. Mm-hmm. You know, I love if we make this a staffing show because I'm the labor reporter. Oh, yeah. I'm actually working on a story right now about why why it's so hard to hire a plumber, why there are these shortages in the trades that predate COVID. And one of the obstacles that I've encountered in my reporting is that a lot of them drug test and cannabis counts. And that is a barrier for folks. They're counting cannabis? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, well, and I'm not judging any of it either way, but right. I'm just saying uh, at the stage where we're dealing with some of the major issues, transportation, all the things, is that something that's wise to leave out? But go on. I just wanted to clarify. <laughs> no, no. I mean, it's a good question. It's one piece of the puzzle. There are a lot of factors at play here. I think like David mentioned, we decided that all kids need to get a four-year degree at a university and, and sort of stopped doing as much of the vocational training that they need in schools and the education just more broadly that you can go into these fields and make six figures. They're good jobs if you're willing to work hard. Um, English language is another barrier. And I think there are really there is this renewed interest in apprenticeships in connecting people with good jobs. But it's going to take time to rebuild those pipelines. Absolutely. And 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 not to, to move the subject, but we're going to another sort of staffing area, which is SPD, but specific. Uh, and, and, and Monica, you're going to be good to talk to about this because because you've actually covered the, the tech world for for a long period of time and now here at KUOW. But it's, there was a street racing incident. Everyone probably knows about this already. In Capitol Hill, in the early morning hours last Sunday, it led to a really rowdy crowd and eventually gunfire that left four people shot, one fatally. Uh, in response, the Seattle Department of Transportation has begun an analysis focused on whether or not traffic cameras could help curb the street racing problem. And City Council Member Alex Peterson, Al- Council Members Alex Peterson and Lisa Herbold have both introduced legislation that would seek to add traffic cameras to 10 sort of restricted racing zones, uh, oddly named restricted racing zones because they're not actually to be restricted away from racing. Uh, somewhat 
It's somewhat like the enhanced penalties that come with uh, near-school drug-free zones, uh, as well as automatic, automated traffic penalties such as red light cameras. Monica, let me ask you then, as we turn to bots and AI for law enforcement, what are the broader implications here? Softball. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, with when any time that you're going to bring in a surveillance technology, I think you just need to be really intentional about what the trade-offs are. They're not always necessarily bad. Like I think anybody who's driven through a school zone that's photo enforced realizes that their you know their photos being taken. Those tickets are very expensive. They're you're we're trading a little bit of privacy in the public sphere for kids' safety, which a lot of people would say that's worth that trade off. I think in this situation, you know, I I don't know enough about it to to say whether it's a good trade off. I think there are you know one question I had was like maybe communities of color would prefer this because it leads to fewer interactions with cops. You know, the technology is more neutral. But you mentioned AI, and we all know that technology is not neutral. And so what other concerns are there going to be around profiling and around the data that's fed into these technologies? They're big, big picture questions. We'd probably have to get a law enforcement reporter in here to answer some of them. But I think that they need to be very much part of the discussion from the beginning. You go right into the question I had for for Angela. Angela, you mentioned that cameras should come equipped with a, quote, equity lens. Um, oh, well, no, I was, I'm so, let me just clarify. Yeah. It was it, it was someone, I'm trying to recall where that quote came from. Which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I was I actually rolled my eyes at it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically, there was this proposal out there. So correct me if I'm wrong, any of you on the beat. But um, this proposal came out and then they said, oh, before we make it final, we need to put it through the equity lens. Um, so I'm just curious, like what that means? Is it does that does an equity lens mean on where we're placing them? Um, I I, I want to know what that means because I don't want it to mean this is delayed for several more months because we need to talk about it. That's right. my only concern. Um, you know, I always hear people saying, "Well, we don't want to militarize certain black communities." You know, people. I, I, I hesitate because I live in the CD. And it's like, is it a black community? <laughs> you know, it's with all the gentrification. I'm like, I don't know if that's there. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, I think we I didn't grow up with cops, meaning military. And it's a threat. My dad was a police officer and he believed in community policing. So we knew like even when I lived in Burien, like we knew the officers, we engaged with them. It was a relationship. Right. My dad bragged about having a beat and knowing the people, knowing the players, knowing the problems. And it, obviously we're dealing with a staff shortage, but it's just my sense, like, if we just had beat officers the way we used to, like, you probably would prevent a lot of the issues and the street racing things building because you have people there. So so, so let's go back to, to the, since this is the official, now we've decided the official staffing show. Uh, <laughs> David, is there enough police available to do, like, beat Form the the way we used to do beat patrols, or what? What do you think uh, uh, the police officers' union would say about that? Yeah, I don't. I don't know. I mean, I um, I'll, I'll pivot just slightly, which is you know, if we're going to make it about staffing, you know, when you look at Seattle Police Department's uh, traffic records, you know, they they haven't written a, basically a traffic ticket in three years. You know, the right. the Seattle Police Department basically does not do traffic enforcement anymore, nor does the Washington State Patrol. I mean, they do. Washington State Patrol does, but. Uh, you, you know, their the traffic the I'm number of tickets or infractions. when I see someone pulled over in Seattle, and I can't remember the last time I have pulled over for what appears to be a traffic violation. Yeah. It's it's like like you said. I mean, the, it, it's it's incredibly unusual anymore. I got rare. pulled over on Mercer Island. <laughs> <laughs> right, probably yeah. not as unusual. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you know, I mean, um, I think I, I suppose maybe the Seattle Police Department could do beat cops, but it would be. You know, what they would say, I imagine, is that means taking police away from usually specialty units. You know, right. there was um, actually reporting that com- combination of KUW and Seattle Times was probably about a year ago at this point about the sexual assault unit. And that that was basically stripped, stripped bare and that there wasn't really anybody investigating sexual assaults anymore. And, you know, part of that is the Seattle Police Department saying, well, we wanted to put these people on patrol. Right. And so that's kind of where we're at right now. And so, you know, traffic enforcement was one of the early uh, casualties of that. You know, the I think the DUI unit has since been re-put um, together, but for a while there, they had disbanded their DUI unit. They weren't going after DUIs. Um, 
And so, you know, I, I think that there's a correlation there between why suddenly automated enforcement like this and traffic cameras is getting a lot more interest, both at the state and city level, because there's some hope that, you know, you, you remove that kind of person to person interaction where, you know, a gun can get pulled and something goes wrong. Right. And also you're, um, you know, taking care of an enforcement action at a time when a lot more people are dying on the roads uh, without needing to add new staff. All you need to do is put up more cameras. But what does an equity lens mean in the context of the cameras? Like to me, it seems like, you know, you would put the cameras where you've had street racing. And so, I I mean, I just, does anyone know? That's the thing I want to know. Well, I mean, you know, there's some of the most dangerous streets in Seattle run through neighborhoods that are uh, less white and less rich. Um, and there's a lot of reasons for that. Uh, decades of zoning, um, you know, it's easier to pit, put big roads through communities that maybe don't have as strong of a voice or as much time to spend. Less it. policing sometimes in those. Less neighbors. policing, yeah. and so you know, it, I think if you get if you really kind of start to unpack it, you can say, you know, why is Rainier Avenue, for example, such an unsafe street? It really is, uh, and it, you know, a lot of people would say it's not a coincidence that it runs through, you know, a lot of. Uh, non-white communities and so therefore if you're starting to put cameras on the most dangerous streets that are in sort of black and brown communities you're going to catch more you know you're going to you're going to enforce against more non-white people and therefore there are equity concerns were you going to say something i saw you i was going to say the same thing just if you think about the downstream effects of we want to try to reduce this one thing illegal racing which we all saw tragically last weekend what can happen that you know, that's a noble intention, but then you've got cameras in these communities of color, and then what happens if they catch other sort of low-level crimes, and then do those crimes get pursued at a higher rate than crimes in white neighborhoods that might also be happening but aren't getting the same attention? Yeah. Something like that, right? I that's think that fair. that's yeah, that that's a definitely a concern that current concern that's been stated. Uh, the uh, we will be right back. Uh, we've got to take a brief break. Uh, we'll be back with weekend review uh, in just a minute or two. Support comes from Kenmore Air, offering getaways to charming Victoria, B.C. with daily flights. Just a quick 45-minute flight from Seattle to Victoria's Inner Harbor from only $169 per person one way. Bookings available now at KenmoreAir.com. Support comes from Pacific Science Center, celebrating spring at Paxi with butterflies at the Tropical Butterfly House, sea creatures in the saltwater tide pool, and Jane Goodall, reasons for hope at the IMAX Theater, a journey around the globe to share good news stories. Learn more at PaxSci.org. Welcome back to Week in Review. We are joined by Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman, KUOW labor and economy reporter Monica Nicholsberg, host, writer, and producer Angela Poe Russell. Welcome, all of you. The Seattle City Council has seven seats, uh, I know, seven seats up for grabs in the upcoming election. And while every city council is literally a referendum on city government, this one feels like a potential Sea change. Monica, we're going to start with you. You've sp- certainly spent some time covering the city council the past few years, particularly its dust-ups with Amazon and payroll taxes. How do, we, how do you see the broad choices for voters at this particular point with this upcoming election? Well, I think no matter what, there's going to be change. There are a lot of seats up for grabs, like you said, and I think it's an opportunity for voters to really set the direction that the council's going to go in. It can be hard to differentiate between candidates in Seattle because pretty much everyone is going to, you know, say that they're a Democrat and ostensibly seem like they're in the same place on issues. But if you if you do a little research, particularly I would recommend reading The Seattle Times and The Stranger, you can start to see some of the nuances. And often they tend to sort into sort of a more um, very left, kind of very progressive side or a more um, business-oriented public safety side, I would say. I mean, that's that's oversimplifying it. But I think right. that those are, tend to be sort of kind of the issues, especially in this election. And, uh, Angela, question for you then. Much of the discussion um, about Seattle and the role of government focus, focuses on affordability issues, such as housing, utilities, food. What role, if any, 
should a city council take uh, to make a city more affordable? It has a major role to play, and and I guess I maybe I should throw my my name in the ring. For this. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I think it has a major role to play. I mean, there are so many things. I mean, when you look at policy that impact how expensive something is. And for example, let's talk about the resistance by so many communities to allow denser housing. Um, or how does, is that the right word, the right way to put it? But basically, you know, wanting to keep our single family home development. And, um, you know, we had the policy against what the big massive houses, what did they call it? The, the super oh, yeah. houses. McMansions. McMansions. And so I say all this to say that, yes, the city council absolutely plays a role in that. Because it's my belief that when you have a problem finding a place to rent, because either it's too expensive or there aren't enough units available, that drives up the price, period. So how do we increase what's out there so we're not, you know, so you kind of bring down that demand a little bit. And there are so many things we can do. I mean, right now. We've had the discussion of design review. It takes too long. I think it's extreme to sit there and say, okay, we just don't have design review. No one's saying that. Just do the job in a more efficient way. If you need to hire more people, do that. Um, Right now, these poor small businesses, I've talked to many who they can't get a permit. I just saw someone on social media last week. Hey, I'm trying to get my business open. (laughs) Could use a permit. You know, can we, I, I think doing some of the basic things well, putting policies in place that help us operate more efficiently. I know it sounds so cliche to say, but it's so true. Like we need to do the basic things well so that we aren't all scrambling for the same thing and driving up the prices. That makes complete sense. So David, turning to you, since you're uh, an expert on these things, we're hoping to get uh, a detailed analysis of all 45 council candidates (laughs) for the special eight-hour edition of Week in Review. Uh, Actually, so the council and mayoral elections in recent history have played out as a lot of what Monica said, with this backdrop of Amazon and the Chamber of Commerce. Mm -hmm. How is this election the same or how is it different? Yeah, it's different because um, I would say that their their place in this election, at least from my uh, standpoint, it it seems like it's less than it used to be. And I think that's intentional because, you know, the last time this many council seats were up, um, Amazon went really hard and the Chamber of Commerce went went really hard and really late um, to try and flip the council towards a slate that would be more favorable to them and, you know, frankly, probably less favorable to a some kind of payroll tax. Uh, y- you know, that is widely seen as kind of a disaster because suddenly it took um, an unpopular council and made the question, do you, you know, do you side with the council or do you side with Amazon, this sort of big business? And when they made it about themselves, suddenly people started voting more progressive Um that you just took me back to a very triggering point in history yeah. <laughs> because I remember watching that in real time and thinking, as much as I hate what some of these politicians are doing, brilliant, like brilliant move because you just pitted um, these two important entities in our community against each other and saying, how can we work with each other? Yeah, um, totally. And I think that the chamber did a lot of reflection and dissolved their their pack after that election. So they're, the, the, the case – uh, political action committee is basically nowhere to be found in this election. Um, I but, think, but the chamber to, to the chamber won to a small degree by getting Bruce Harrell as mayor, correct? Yeah, and they also, but they also didn't do that much publicly, and uh, right, right, found out that um, you know Bruce. They kind of stood back and um, turned out that what Bruce Harrell was saying was um, much more popular among voters. So um, my sense is that they're sort of, you know, they they see they see this election. This would be my guess, sort of going in a certain direction and say, you know, we're not going to get in the way of that if right. that's where it's actually going. That makes you know, sense. to Angela's point, I think about the she's talking about density. And that's really interesting to me about this election is, you know, you think back to 2015 or 2017 even. And there was not that level of unanimity around needing to increase housing stock and needing to add more density in the city. You know, the, the Seattle Times reporters did a kind of survey of candidates and it's basically across the board everyone saying we need to add density to to increase the housing stock and that to me um the way you mean the whole paradigm shifted yeah the the paradigm has shifted quite a bit that there's just not the same level of disagreement around uh making changes to single family zoning and and adding more rental units and um, i think that just kind of highlights how uh, dire and desperate yeah. people have, have started to feel about the housing crisis. The question is, they keep talking, we need affordable. What does affordable mean right now? Mm-hmm. Like, is that 
a million dollars? Is it, (laughs) you know, when they talk, but I, but I do think that just being able to increase the supply and and I'm sure there's some economists that would have a nice debate with me about all this, but (laughs) it just seems to make a lot of sense for me as a consumer. Monica, when, I mean, the affordability issue obviously is a big one. Renting, owning, uh, if you can even get into the category of, of owning in Seattle. Those are big issues. Outside of that, what, what, what do you see as the city council issues that are, that are less related, specific to Seattle's affordability? Or is that one so, such a gravity center that really it matters more than anything? Housing and homelessness are are the biggest issues, I think. I don't think anybody would debate that. That's what comes up the most when you're talking with folks. But I also think that the the public safety conversation is a big one. Um, you know, there are a lot of small business owners running for council. And I was just chatting with our food reporter. That as well, right? Yeah. Um, Ruby DeLuna, our food reporter, and I were talking about it. And, you know, she brought up a great point that there's this this sort of spirit among especially like small restaurant owners of like, you know, when you're short staffed, when there's a problem, roll up your sleeves and and try to fix it yourself. And I think a number of businesses, especially downtown, are feeling the pain of these concurrent crises that we haven't been able to solve as a city. You know, the housing crisis, the opioid epidemic, um, the fraying relationship between the police and the community, which I think we're going to talk about a little bit more later. So I think that those things are also really front of mind. And one other thing I'd add quickly is that even though um, Amazon is not on the ballot in the way that it was last time, they still have a presence for sure. They're uh, an employee that they fired. Maren Costa is running in District 1. She is a, a tech worker activist who is now kind of using her you know, she she claims that she was able to successfully pressure Amazon to step up on climate change and that she could do something similar at city council. And Amazon actually cannot donate anymore, apparently. I was just oh, talking with them about this of because of the yeah, right. uh, oh, Clean Campaigns Act. Right, right. right. I forgot about that. So I don't know that they would anyway that's, that's an after last point. time. But no, um, talking about the Clean Campaigns Act. So, okay, I, I as far as I understand it, it's it forbids entities with any even a small percentage of foreign ownership from donating in local elections. David, is that your understanding? Yeah, I think that's the It's been a while since I've thought about it. I'm just remembering that that even exists. So let me ask you this. Do you feel like the relationship between Amazon and the city council has improved in the last several years? Because it was really – I just – and I was just, you know, seeing it play out as a resident of the city of Seattle – and feeling like this is not what I want. Like I need my government and I also need companies like Amazon and Microsoft. They matter. And it was like everyone was fighting with each other. Has it smoothed out a bit in your view? I don't know if it's smoothed out. I mean, it was at such a bad place. I agree that it's hard to imagine it going anywhere but up. <laughs> um, that being said, I think it's it's become less in the public sphere. Mm. You know, those conversations, I think, are happening more privately after learning some lessons of the big battles between the city and Amazon. And I think it will continue to trend in that direction because it just hasn't been a winning strategy for them to to, to fight Seattle's government out in the open. Well, it was kind of a win with the transportation thing, right, about the about sound transit in terms of Amazon kind of voicing some concerns and the government kind of saying, hey, we agree and finding. Well, am I, I getting think, that I wrong? Think, no, no, no. I think I think that there's that is absolutely I mean, it's not like Amazon's influence has gone away. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think that just the upfront combative nature. I mean, remember, Amazon did everything relative. Amazon remapped downtown Seattle relatively quietly, not from a construction and disruption standpoint, but its efforts were not as public uh, as it became during the payroll tax. That's when Amazon sort of like showed at least one facet of itself. And and mm-hmm. to, to your point, I, I, I don't see that Amazon is not going to have a whole bunch of wins in the future. I mean, I imagine Amazon probably will, but but maybe the maybe the fights won't be. They'll be there, but maybe not as lo- I just, loud this time. I just want us to work together. Like if I were a, a city official, and all the resources that we have in the Pacific Northwest, I would be trying to figure out how we all work together. How can I tap into your resources? How do we? It, it just felt like it was a waste of energy and um, opportunity to fight. No, absolutely. All right. Switching quickly. One more uh, state level issue 
uh, before we go on break, a referendum to overturn state law that would extend runaway shelter protections for trans teens last week failed to get enough signatures to get on the ballot. The, ballot, the proposed ballot measure, which was backed by, uh, famously backed by Donald Trump Jr., would have rolled back protections approved by the state that extended existing shelter protections offered to runaway teens to include trans teens seeking an abortion uh, or teens seeking an abortion or gender-affirming care. Uh, as they have been in the past, shelters are required to in, inform the State Department of Children and Youth Families about uh, the child so the department can begin reunification. Uh, David, first question for you, what are the differences between the new state law protecting trans runaways and other teens who ran away from home for different reasons, such as physical abuse? Um, I don't... God, I don't know if I know the exact differences there. I just uh, my my understanding though is was on the notification end of things. Correct? Yeah, right. So my my understanding is, um, you, you know, there are certain because you know there's there's a tough balance, of course, in the shelter system of wanting to sort of account for young people, but then also you know some of those young people are running away right. from abusive parents, and so notifying the parents of these young people being in a shelter, obviously that's not a good thing. And so they instead go to the state, they go to uh, DSHS. This, this would have sort of just expanded that, that uh, the parameters um, that shelters have to follow to kids who are maybe seeking uh, gender affirming care or an an abortion. And, you know, it, it, in some ways um, it's, I think it got a little blown out of proportion what it exactly meant because it was framed as the state, Stealing away, stealing, stealing kids. your kids, stealing right? Your kids, and all they're saying is just so. I, so we're clear: they would contact Department of Youth and Families, right? Yeah, and yeah. then, then they would be the ones to kind of work on getting yes. the parents some involved. level of reunification. Yes. Um, so you know, I mean, it's it's got basically the perfect uh, perfect ingredients for a cultural <laughs> storm because right. you're talking about uh, parental rights, um, transgender young people many of whom are under 18. You and know, if you even bring up transgender young yeah. people, I mean, it's immediately becomes this cultural flashpoint, right? Exactly. And, uh, you know, I don't know how often this scenario has or will come up. Um, you know, I will say, though, that, you know, a disproportionate number of, of young people who are in the shelter system are uh, LGBTQ. And so, right. um, and, you know, that's not a coincidence because... It's of, not a coincidence. Of course, we know we know that a lot of people aren't accepted at home for, you know, their sexual identity. And so... They end up running away, um, and so or being kicked out, or being kicked out, or yeah, being exactly. kicked out. Yeah, if no, you exactly. if you aren't going to conform to being straight or whatever it is the the parents want them to be, then get out of my house. Exactly, and so this this the intention behind this was to sort of extend protections from to, to people who might find themselves in really precarious, dangerous situations. Um, you know, like like every law that's passed, I'll be very curious to see how it actually plays out and how often this actually comes up. Um, but uh, because this referendum failed, um, in part because the, the Catholic church initially said that they wouldn't get behind, they wouldn't help signature gatherers, uh, uh, get out there and collect signatures. They decided sort of at the last minute that they actually were going to help people I was so collect signatures. By that. Um, and then it still came up 5,000, 5,000 short. So, um, as for, for now, this, this is, which as a percentage though, isn't very far from actually getting on the ballot. I mean, no, yeah. Given no. that it's a what, one hundred sixty-two thousand signatures. Yeah, I don't know. I don't think they ever actually turned in the signatures. So five thousand short may have ended up being quite a few more than five thousand short enough, because they all have to be verified, right? Yeah, and you know, there's some. I don't know what the percentage is, but some percentage of every initiative when they're turned in, a lot of the signatures end up being repeats or right. Uh, and so you, you know, signature gatherers, they, they they try to get many thousands of signatures more than more. what they require. Um, so the, I, I think they probably still had more to go than just 5,000 signatures. But y- you have to imagine if the Catholic Church had maybe gotten involved earlier, then, yeah, this could have been on the ballot. Monica, talk for a second. We're, we're going to get to a break pretty quick here. But I wanted to hear from you about this tension between these what these shelters have to report and what parents expect to happen. If someone finds your kid, I mean, you want to know immediately. But the shelters are in this in – this, they're caught in this tension mm-hmm. between – you know, a, a perception of protecting the kids and a perception of what they were leaving uh, in the household. I mean, do you think that these reporting restrictions actually help keep, keep kids off the street? I do. I think it, it's important to be clear that 
there is no part of this that involves keeping children away from their parents for any long amount of time. The function of it is to keep the kids in the shelter and not have them bolt because they're afraid, because their parents have just been called and they're aware of that. So it brings in counselors. It brings in some extra services so that when they are reconnected with their parents, they're, they're hopefully – are supports there to facilitate that process in a way that's safe for the children. And also it just keeps them in the system rather than having them run and then potentially end up on the streets. I think that that has gotten completely lost in the, the, the you know, the, the, the debate, debate over this, this right. which, which is much more centered in fear because any parent would be afraid of their child being taken from them or receiving medical care without them being involved. But it's, that's just not what's happening. Okay. We will be right back with Week in Review after a short break. Welcome back to Week in Review. We are joined by KUW economy and labor reporter Monica Nicholsberg, Seattle Times transportation reporter David Croman, host, writer, and producer Angela Poe Russell. Let's get right into it as we wrap up the show. Last weekend was one of the busiest in Seattle. It, Seattle, I, I read by one estimate, was one of the most densely populated places in the western United States during last weekend. We had, of course, uh, Taylor Swift, you may have heard of her, uh, Capitol Hill Block Party, Bite of Seattle, Mariners, just terrific weather, which, which added to the whole mix, um, the works. But there was one critical development that has been reported on since then as a reaction to, and it was a lack of sufficient police presence. Uh, David, let's start with you. What happened? Well, that's that's what's interesting about it is we're not entirely sure. Um, the the union president Mike Solon came out and said uh, that something like fifty percent of officers called out sick, suggesting that it was a sick out. Um, and but, then but, said what? But then he said uh, that as union president, he 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 would not have uh, explicitly condoned that, and in fact, you know, told union officers that uh, such a labor action for a Seattle police, for a police union would be illegal. Um, and so it's just this kind of awkward thing where, you know, when you when unions take action, the whole point is to be really noticed because you're trying to make a statement. You're trying to be disruptive and you want as many people to notice that as possible. When you get into kind of public safety unions like this, uh, labor actions end up being a little more subtle. And in this case, we have not heard sort of 100%, at least not that I've read, have not seen 100% confirmation that this was in fact a sick out um you know it's also summer a lot of people go on vacation and things like that so uh yeah i don't know it's kind of i'm interested to hear monica's labor labor take on this um interesting interesting thing yeah i mean i agree i think that being united is is what really leads to worker power when you're going to have an action from some of the reporting i saw it seemed like there were definitely folks who were saying that's what was going on we are understaffed under-resourced we're tired of this and and we want to make that known but it seems like there may not have been a, a unified front on that right angela let me ask you then how do we get I mean, of all the issues we've run across so far, and and I don't know that anything from a staffing level uh, has been talked about more uh, than the, what are we at, one-third shortage uh, on police officers in Seattle, something along those lines. How do we get more police officers in Seattle? You know, um, we have to change our rhetoric. That's a big part of it. I mean, we can talk about the money and the bonuses. Yes, that's important. It has to be there. Um, we also have to adjust the rhetoric. At the same, and, I, and it doesn't mean that we don't hold people accountable who do things that are wrong. Absolutely, we need to hold people accountable. But at the end of the day, law enforcement, like they're part of our community, um, they're public servants at their best, and and we need them. I mean, it's a relationship thing. And, you know, I was talking about this this week that when the Pride Parade happened and it was like, okay, law enforcement can't be part of that. I mean, those kind of things just create this. um, Yeah, it it just I think, Monica, you put it well in something you said earlier that right now the relationship is just it's really difficult. I also think when I look at this latest action, which, yes, it does appear to. It appears to have been a sick out. You know, we can't say that officially, but 50% calling in is pretty significant. Um, We have to think about leadership. You know, do we have the right 
if it if something and you tell me, Monica, but if something gets to a point where workers feel like we have to call out, I don't know. I I'm a big believer as leader as leaders, you have to take responsibility, and so I put this at the feet of the chief and who I, I it just I you know I don't know Chief Diaz well, but I I always respect when a person at the top says you know when this happens I need to own it that for whatever reason, they felt like that was their only option. I think it's a really difficult situation, kind of unlike any other, you know, we're seeing labor unrest in a lot of different Mm -hmm. industries. But I think the police and the police in Seattle is really unique because we didn't get to this point on accident. You know, there there was a a long documented track record of the police behaving in a way where they lost the trust of the community. Mm -hmm. And then we had the Seattle City Council in response to that, talking about defunding the police. And then we we had the relationship fray even further. And then there's mistrust between city government and the police. And I, I, I totally hear you about taking accountability and about leadership stepping up. But at the same time, I wouldn't want that job right now because honestly, I don't know what the path forward is. Yeah, that's that's a great question, and and it seems to me like when we're talking about uh, SPD and we're talking about labor shortages, we also have to talk about sort of the broader issue in that how many large American cities aren't experiencing this, regardless of you know whether it's a progressive or a conservative city council. Every single major department seems to be. I mean, there is there. Let me ask anyone for in the group who cares to answer this. It feels to me, and as the uh, as the daughter of a police officer, the the it, it uh, Angela, the, it feels to me like there's this larger malaise regarding policing in America right now and not just specific to Seattle. That is very true. And, you know, these days we're seeing what's been happening all along through our, you know, mobile phones. And it's like each week I see because just at that point where I think, you know, things are turning, people are getting the message, maybe the bad officers are quitting. Then you see another incident and you're just like, really? Like, why is this okay? Why hasn't this person who's part of law enforcement been arrested? Um, I do think if we start quickly holding officers who make mistakes accountable, I shouldn't make mistakes. There's making a mistake and then there's actually willfully just doing something that's um, that that's awful. And hold it when they quickly hold them account- accountable that will build community trust and on the other hand i think that police need to hear from the community that they're supported so yeah this is a nationwide problem i think largely driven by what we're seeing the actual videos and then also by the fact that they aren't often being held accountable in an expeditious way monica talk for a second uh about or maybe more than one about the difference between, I mean, we frequently talk with, and especially if it's a Seattle Police Department issue, uh, the union president, Mike Solon, is always the person who is the spokesperson for this. But police unions are different than than a regular labor union in a lot of very key ways. And and you brought it up, David, about that you can't legally even have a sick out. Um, it has to be this unofficial thing probably shared through, I don't know, WhatsApp or Facebook groups or something like that to actually get people Doing this because as a union president, he obviously can't say it, but he can say it without saying it. And I think that that's potentially what we was demonstrated last. When we talk about public employees unions, uh, and we're also talking about you know other unions, obviously Seattle's always been a fairly friendly union town. The distinctions between a, a SPOG, which is Seattle Police Officers Guild, and other unions are pretty clear. But I'm not sure that people always understand that. I mean, they actually have stricter guidelines on what they can and can't do as far as labor protests than other unions, correct? I believe so, yeah. Yeah. And, and when, you, when you see that uh, here in a place like Seattle and you see that, that this is a potential sick out, I mean, is it, is it possible that they don't have other recourses? I mean, this is really – I mean, they can't really go on strike, Right. So how do they then uh, enact a, some form of a protest saying we deserve better treatment as, as union members? I remember I was in um, Montreal, actually, in like 2011, I want to say, and there was something, some action like this going on, and all the police, the police officers uh, were not wearing like their standard uniforms. That was their protest. They, they really? couldn't quit. They couldn't walk off the job. Right. Obviously Canada has different labor laws than the United States, but similar in that they're, they're not allowed to go on strike. And so when you walked around, you'd see all of these officers wearing like basically street clothes, even though they were in marked cars and things like that. And so you see little things like that. 
um, you know, the, 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 the labor, um, the labor and police union relation to, to me is kind of endlessly fascinating. Uh, around 2020, Martin Luther King County Council um, Labor, sorry, Martin Luther MLK Labor Council, basically right. the the union of unions in in King County, voted to kick Spog out of, that, out right. of out of that body. Um, you know, there was a lot of argument at the time about how, in fact, police unions are different than than regular unions. Um, but that wasn't unanimous. You know, the Richard Trumka at the um, top of the AFL-CIO, he stood by police unions. And so that, to me, is just one of those really interesting debates about where where police unions fit into the broader union um, landscape. And is anyone, uh, Monica or you, David, or anyone paying attention to this, are, is there any warming of the relationship? Chief Diaz was supposed to be a person who could maybe make this a little bit more collegial, you know, push hard to get more officers hired? Is anyone seeing anything in this regard or that, that they're catching up to the deficit in, in officers? I don't think they are catching up to the deficit. Um, and, and you know, we you talked about changing rhetoric. Um, we were talking about the city council. I was just looking at actually a, a KUW story by David Hyde pointing out that, you know, Dan Strauss, who in 2020 was one of the people who, you know, if not explicitly calling for defund the police, it signaled a willingness to talk about defunding the police. Andrew Lewis as well. Uh, and Andrew Lewis. And he put out a flyer for his reelection this year that says on it, defund the police was a mistake. <laughs> that was one of the... the That's f- a significant... And so that, you know, we, we're, and, you know, Bruce Harrell was the I don't support defund the police guy in the mayor races and he won by 20 points. You know, it's... Um, so, so the rhetoric has changed. You know, the money is there. The, 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 there is budget to hire people. Um, but I think, you know, it's a question of there, there is sort of a, a basic kind of cultural disconnect, I think, between some of the Seattle police officers and the city of Seattle. We saw that a few weeks ago when body camera footage came out and there was a big Trump flag in one of the, the break rooms in oh, Seattle yeah. Police yeah, Department. What a break right. of trust. Um, what a bre- You know, if, when you talk about that relationship with the community and the police being rebuilt and then all of a sudden that comes out and the fact that it had been there for a while. Yeah. So people just put up with it and let it stay there. Yeah. And I think that is why police sort of stand aside in the larger labor story that we've been tracking, where sympathy for unions and support for labor is is really high right now. But I don't think when people are thinking about supporting the average worker that they're including the police union there. I think it's a different story. Exactly. All right. If I could, I'm going to move it on to one final topic before we get into our smile of the of the week. Uh, Amazon, which has remapped downtown Seattle more than any other force in recent years, has come out against light rail, specific light rail expansion to add a stop in South Lake Union. Monica, what's going on here? Yeah, it's a little bit more uh, nuanced than that. It's But basically, there was an original plan for the expansion of the light rail to get the light rail over to Ballard that would involve closing Westlake Avenue right. for at least four years while that station was under construction. And this week, Amazon came out and said that they supported a plan that would shift that station west. Problem is, Sound Transit initially said that in order to do that, they would have to close the planned South Lake Union station and consolidate the two. And transit advocates, that was like a non-starter for them. So what they voted on this week was to consider a different proposal to move the station north and also potentially study the shifted west option, but only if they can keep South Lake Union open. So so what would we be ending up with then? We'd still end up with a station in South Lake Union, correct or no? Yes, I think everybody pretty much agreed that was an outcome of the meeting was that they were not looking at closing the South Lake Union station. And so was, no, I go, go ahead. Andrew. No, I just was everybody happy now. I'm trying to. No, <laughs> no, <laughs> no one is happy. No. <laughs> we can't on it. Okay. I mean, this just this whole thing. I mean, this shows this. This is what happens when. Well, well, this is what happens when two things. When you do two things. First, you try to build a mass transit system on us in a city that already is fairly well built up. Um, there is basically no. Uh, we we have seen this at almost literally literally almost every single stop in this planning between West Seattle and Ballard. There has been some fight over disruptions that it's going to cause. It's going to cause disruptions. It's going to be a pain for people. Um, that is just going to be the reality of building a mass transit system through a built out city. You know, the other thing is we, we voted on a package that was flexible. Uh, so when voters approved Sound Transit 3, it, it didn't bind the Sound Transit board to the options that were contained in there. And what that means is that you have, you know, we are six years removed from Sound Transit 3 being built and we are 
still can reconsidering uh, where to put stations and plans. you know Which is why it's taken us so long to get here the first yeah, there's you know there's some nuance to why you know it's yeah, a really expensive it. thing and you have to collect tax revenue and all that but it just is opens up a big political can of worms when rather than voting on a pre-baked package with this is where things are definitely going you vote on a concept which is to expand light rail that is flexible, you you get these fights that, right. um, you know, the, the Sound Transit Board has had consultants come on and say, you guys got to stop this. You guys but have to move forward. But and here's here why I think it was wise. I, th- I can see the wisdom in it because when you, we voted on that, could we have predicted a pandemic that really brought small businesses to their knees? And so for me, when I think about being thoughtful mm. about this, it's not just about, well, I'm being inconvenienced because of traffic and the roads and all that. But these businesses are just trying to stay alive. And I do think if there's a way to minimize the impact so that they can make it through this, this next thing, it's like, don't give them a pandemic and then shut everything down around them. Um, that's 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 so I can I see your point, like just vote on the plan and move forward. But having that flexibility, especially when you can't you know, even imagine what might change. I can right, see that, too. Right. All right. We're going to that's a that's almost almost a show. But we're going to get into, I think, Bill's favorite segment, which is something this week that made you smile. Um, Angela, let's start with you. Oh, it was the U.S. Women's National Team playing against the Netherlands. Oh, my goodness. What a game. Good game. It was, um, game. It was just rough and tumble, gritty. Just It was awesome. It was fun to watch. David? Well, we've talked so much about labor on this uh, on this show Um thing that made me smile is uh the seattle times union has a tentative agreement hey oh, congratulations awesome. i didn't know yeah as of they announced it like right before i came on the show um wow, wow. so that's we've been in negotiations for a long time our contract expired months having ago. been involved in those negotiations when i was a post-intelligence reporter i know how difficult that is congratulations yeah, I was, no thanks to me i was not i was not at the bargaining <laughs> table thanks to the bargaining team but uh yeah it's a good thing I'm smiling because it's Banty Friday at KUOW. I didn't know you did this. I was talking to Kevin before the show, producer Kevin Kniestad. I think it's new. And our producer, Kevin Kniestad, is wearing a shirt. I'm looking at him right now that says, I heart jewel. It's iconic. That is making me smile. It's a what Friday? What did you call it? Banty Friday. And what is yours? Oh, Oh, mine is Lou Reed. Oh, Lou Reed. Nice. I could not get tickets to Taylor. I tried until the very last minute last weekend, and I was bumped. So now it's like I could not. You weren't willing to take out a mortgage to do it. (laughs) Okay, good good question. I was not willing to trade my firstborn child, um, (laughs) and I was bummed. So I have I've just totally flipped the script. I'm only listening to the like you know retro music from high school that I was into, and (laughs) and Taylor is on hiatus. In my house. You see how that 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 is a, a more empowering thing, right? You chose not to. Yes, exactly. Yes. <laughs> exactly. We'll go with that. And I'll give one quick uh, one quick shout out. My smile for the week is all of you folks who rode in the uh, uh, ramrod, which I did as well yesterday, which is a ridiculously hard bicycle ride around Mount, Mount Rainier. Uh, congratulations if you got all the way through it. Uh, congratulations if you just tried. Uh, that's why I'm feeling a little bit sort of strung out today. I'm still a little bit, still a little bit exhausted because I'm just way too old to be doing this anymore. Anyway, uh, that makes it for a show. Thanks for joining us on Weekend Review. We had Seattle Times uh, transportation reporter David Croman, uh, host writer and producer Angela Poe Russell, KUW labor and economy reporter uh, Monica Nicholsberg. Weekend Review is produced by Kevin Kniestat. Social media and live streaming by Juan Pablo Chiquiza. Uh, Teo Popescu uh, and Bernard uh, Wallet is running the board. Thank you for listening. I'm Mike Lewis in for Bill Radke. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.